Welcome to the 26 West Church Sunday Gathering Podcast. Our prayer is that this teaching helps you experience life in Jesus. Let's let's pray and we'll get right in. Lord, we do love you. We're grateful for another day. We're grateful for extended sunshine in October. Hallelujah to the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, thank you uh, for the beauty of this week and the moments of pain and suffering. We thank you for all of it, God, because you are concerned with all of our life. You want to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine because we now belong to you, Jesus, because you are in us and, and we are in you. All things are possible now to us, your people who believe. So God, Will you reshape the way we think? Will you reshape the way we feel? We, will you reshape the way we live so we can honor you with our lives today and tomorrow and with every day that you give us breath until we see you face to face? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said uh, amen. So we're in a series on 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at how we are to follow Jesus together. And uh, we have looked at the first three verses I said last week. Uh, we are looking at these three verses over three weeks. Will we go this slow forever? No. We'll pick up the pace. But what we want to do is whenever you're studying a book of the Bible or a long section of Scripture, you want to get yourself a good, solid foundation, and then you can build on it, knowing who the people are, knowing why Paul's writing, knowing all this background stuff. It may sound boring or dull or what's the point, but it's not because this letter was written first to someone else. We're reading someone else's mail. This was written 2,000 years ago to a group of real people in a real place. So until we understand what's going on there, how are we going to understand what it means for us as Scripture today? So we're going to do what we did last week. Uh, we're going to stand up, uh, and I'm going to invite you to do that now. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. We'll do it again next week, and, and then we'll actually do more than verses um, 1 through 3 next week. But at least let's just say these words. These are the words of God. Let's say them all uh, together if we can. One, two, three. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you, can, you can have a seat. Last week we focused in on verse 1. Today we're going to focus in on verse 2. For those of you who missed last week, we have all sorts of resources that we recommended. When we're, when we're not just reading the Bible, which reading it matters, or listening matters, but there is something to our growth in following Jesus that would cause us to study the Bible, and that's what we're doing. Beyond just reading cursory and seeing the big picture, we want to actually look uh, and, and, and put it down into bite-sized pieces so we understand not just the big picture, but what each line is saying. And in order to do that, we all need help. So I was the first to confess. I'm not smart, but I've learned how to read. And so there are all sorts of written resources, audio resources, video resources. They're in the weekly, if you get the weekly. And we're just inviting you to partner in. A lot of what I say, that was like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And so I just read and look and reflect 
and go, wow, that was helpful, and hopefully I'm passing on things that are helpful to you. And so all of us can do this, and I encourage you, the point of going through a book of the Bible isn't just to go through the book or to grab what God is saying in the moment, but it's also a way that we learn how to appreciate, learn, understand, apply the Bible in everyday life. And if you are here for the next year in going through this, and you haven't picked up some tips on how to read and interpret and understand the Bible for yourself, then, then we're not doing as well as we can. So part of this is you pressing in and gaining some of the resources. I would encourage you to do that. All right, I'm going to read verse 2 again because we're going to zone in on that. To the church of who? God. Where? In Corinth. And then he qualifies what it means to be a part of the church. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're going to look at that. Called to be his holy people. That seems to be a descriptor. And then it's not just Corinth. Together with all those everywhere, so church is not just in Corinth, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That defines what a church is. Those who are calling on Jesus, their Lord and ours, so there's a shared experience. Okay, what do we need to know about Corinth that might be helpful? Well, just turn in your Bible uh, to the left, if you have your written print Bible. If not, go in your app to Acts 18, and we're going to do like we did last week. The best thing we could do in learning to study and appreciate the Bible is to find out what the Bible says about the Bible. And so we get a letter, we get two actually, the first letter of the Corinthians, the second letter, but that stems out of what happened in real time. And so Acts 18, Luke, the historian, gives us an accurate account of Paul going to the city, and it's helpful to read. Why? Because what happens in his experience there leads to some things that we read in the letter later on. So Acts um, 18, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. It's a lot, but 100% of it is worth it. So just read along in your Bible or on the screen. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had, um, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. Uh, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. And every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, quote, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, end quote. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who had heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in prison. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So 
Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews in Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. He wouldn't get my vote for sure. Um, okay, so you, you, you're getting a glimpse and a snapshot of what happens as Paul goes from Athens in Greece and he's seen some people come to faith. But really, there's so much philosophy, there's so many ideas, only a few turn to Jesus in Athens. He goes over to Corinth, and we see what happens. And this just gives us a little bit of a view. For those of you who are not familiar with what we're talking about, let's throw up a map. For those of you map people, look right at the center. Just north of there is where he comes from, Athens. And he's, he's in this spot, which the word Corinth, unfortunately, blocks it. But if you've been to the area or the region, you know it just sits in this strategic spot. It's just the, the place of crossroads. And it sits where you're going to, if you're going to bring in stuff, either from the Adriatic Sea or you're going to uh, bring it in from the waterways, you have to pass through a thin slice of water, and it's exactly where Corinth sits. So the reason it becomes a strategic city in, in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, at the time of Paul, is because there is a crossroads of the north-south trade routes and east-west trade routes, and that particular piece of land um, gives us strategy, and it's the reason that it grew. It's the reason that if you brought commerce anywhere, you would get taxed in Corinth, and then it would go by land to other places, so it's a bustling city. He's writing probably from Ephesus over uh, to the right, crossing through a long waterway, and, and Paul goes to all of these cities, Galatia and Philippi and Thessalonica, and so you see all the way on the bottom right is Jerusalem, the land where Jesus walked, but when, when God ap appeared, when Jesus appeared to Paul, you remember he had this word given from God that was passed on to him that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, the Jews predominantly are living in the lower right, even though they had people all across the Roman Empire, but the center was in the lower right. But God sends this man on a mission all across the Roman Empire, and then if you look upper left, he's going to end up in Rome, uh, the center of the known universe uh, in their day. Okay, that, 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 that helps you visual learners. I'm a visual learner. So what, what, what do we know about Corinth? It's probably the third most strategic city in all of the Roman Empire. Remember, in this day, even the Holy Land, Israel, is led by the Romans. They're a conquering empire, and it's the third most strategic city. Rome, the capital, would be number one. Alexandria, uh, in what's modern-day Egypt, covers all of the east and the south. And then the third most strategic city is Corinth. So when you look at what is like modern-day Europe, Corinth is the center. Why? 
Like I said, because it was the crossroads of trade. And so in, in their day, cities weren't big. But depending on who you read, these, the historians of the day outside of the Bible tell us there's, there's probably 150 to 300,000 citizens, Roman citizens in Corinth, and then they didn't count slaves in their like, population, in their census, but there could be upwards of half a million slaves in Corinth. So let's just say conservatively there's a half to three-quarters of a million people in this town, and it's why Paul goes to preach good news. It's because where the people are. Now, when I think of Corinth, it's a name that doesn't strike me as anything, but one a writer put it this way. If you're thinking of Corinth, thinking of, think of a mix of New York, the center of business, right? Think of also, it's New York and it's L.A., a center of the arts. Most of our movies and most of our media comes out of L.A. And Corinth was a mix of business and arts, and then he's like, throw in a bit of Las Vegas. Why not? And Corinth was a mix of all three because it, it drew people from all over the empire. Everyone worshipped their own way in Corinth. And people brought in all of their vices and all of their behaviors that was wild and far from the way of Jesus. And so Paul goes here to share the good news. Now last week we focused on Paul, and he, he enters from Athens. And I want to just remind us, as we get into verse 2, we'll look at it. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be holy? That's where we're going to end up. But let's just think about how God works through people, how God works through you. God enables us to do whatever he calls us to do. Here's the good news. If you belong to Jesus, you're already equipped. He already put things in your life that he's going to use for his glory. He already uh, put experiences that are going to be helpful for you to do what God's called you to do. And the beauty of the body is we're all wired differently, and this is good. Now, what are some of the tools that Paul has been given by God to enable him him to fulfill his calling in his generation. Well, we know, we read in verse 2, that Paul is a, um, uh, is a tent maker. He's got a trade. And so when he goes into Corinth, what does he need to do? He needs to eat. He needs to live. And so he goes into this bustling city, and because it's a place where there's commerce and taxes and all sorts of influx, his trade opens up opportunities. He finds Priscilla and Aquila who are Jewish and he spends time with them and he begins to share good news with them and he builds a relationship and Priscilla and Aquila are going to become part of his ministry team. But God set him up with a trade and set up Priscilla and Aquila with a trade that would resource them, not only to live, but to make connections that would have a Jesus impact. And this is a reminder. And I need to remind all of us here at all times, that what you do, what your vocation would be, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, which is an undervalued godly vocation, or a stay-at-home dad, which is an undervalued godly vocation, you're giving your life to these one, two, three, seven, ten, no one with ten here, but you're giving your lives to these humans, the godly vocation or you're an engineer, or uh, you work with hardware and software, or you're an electrician, or whatever, whatever you are or hope to be, that's where God is. God's working in and through the things that you're using to make a living and the things that you're doing in everyday life. And so some of us think of, like, well, I would love to serve God 
So I'll volunteer in one of these serve teams because that's my way to serve God, and that's helpful, and that's good, and that's a beautiful thing, and you should do that. But you know what? Being a Jesus follower in your workplace and honoring him is ministry. Well, you say, well, I'm not talking about Jesus all the time, but you're getting to know people, you're serving them, you're loving them, you're doing your work well, you're modeling what it is to know God. In the real world, everyone's vocation here, which might be different, is also a means by which God's going to get his good news to everybody, and so you are already in the ministry. You are right now. The question is, as a Jesus follower, are you going to see yourself that way? Or are you going to see it as, no, those who preach the Bible or teach the Bible or who work at a church, they're in the ministry. Well, that's one form of the many forms that we serve God. Does that make sense? Because Paul has no problem making tents. Second thing we know that God resourced him with is he's a trained Jewish Pharisee. It was part of his background, his, his heritage. He was, he was learned in the scriptures. He was taught well. And he was part of the, one of the most strict segments of the Jewish community in, in their day that took the Bible literally and seriously and memorized it and wanted to work hard to get all of Israel to actually follow the Bible. And so not every community within the Jewish faith was as dedicated as the Pharisees, but that was his training. Why is that helpful? Now, now Paul didn't like cause that on himself. He was good at the Bible. And he loved God. So God even used that training. So when he started to follow the Messiah, Jesus, he was given an open door because he was a trained Pharisee. He had an open door in every synagogue to be a guest teacher. So God set him up by giving him a trade. God set him up by helping him to get the training that he needed before he started following Jesus. Here's my point, and we need to get this. God will use everything in your life. He will use the good experiences. He will even use the horrific experiences. And some of you who've gone through some stuff that you're like, God, why me? And why did I have to? And why am I still struggling with? I am not suggesting that God is the cause of any of that. But here's what I am saying. God can still use that for your good and more than likely for the good of other people who have similar struggle or similar pathways. Have you ever met someone who's gone through what you're going through? There's an immediate connection that you can't fake, you can't make up, but God does this. Third tool that we know is Paul is a Roman citizen by birth. Again, this is the goodness of God. So he goes into Corinth, and because he is a Roman citizen, he has privileges. Remember, they only counted the citizens. He was not a slave. He could have been born a slave, but he was not one. And he was not just part of the colony that was shipped from all over the empire because what they would do is if they established a colony like Corinth, they wanted to send as many Roman uh, people into there to bring Roman vision and values. So he wasn't just shipped off there. He chose to be there, and on more than one occasion, Paul's life is literally saved because he's a Roman citizen. They're going to beat him they're going to kill him. And he says, stop, I'm a citizen. And they're like, what? And because he has that citizenship by birth, he has rights. Otherwise, he would have been snuffed out a long time ago. Again, my point, God will use all of life. Uh, uh, super practical. Wherever I go around the world, today, having a U.S. passport 
has value and opens doors to get into countries that, and other places if you have a different passport you can't get into. And so God can use your family background. I'm Puerto Rican, which you know, some people around the world are anti-American, but they hear Jose, like, oh, he must be from Mexico. And, and so that, that opens doors, being Latin background, having an American citizenship, having had Bible training. God can use all of those things. And the same could be said for you. You love soccer or you love software, whatever it is. God has pathways for you to get the good news. And so going from tent making, and then remember his buddies show up, we just read, and because his buddies show up, he's freed up and supported by their hard work so he can focus on preaching and teaching. God wants to use all of this. And hopefully you caught in Acts 18 that on the final verse that we read, Sosthenes, remember the, the letter that Paul writes from Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother, well, we think that this is the Sosthenes that's, that's beaten for his allegiance to Jesus while Paul is there planting the church. Now, evidently, Sosthenes is with him traveling along, and as he writes the letter back to Corinth, he reminds them of their brother and those who were OG, the original church that were there, would remember the brother that was beaten for his faith who's still following the way of Jesus, okay? That's just a little bit of background. Hopefully that's helpful. If not, you endured. You did w real well, so thank you very much. All right, now when did Paul plant this church, and when was the letter written? So let's just get a little bit of a, a framework. My Bible nerd friends, you're going to like this kind of stuff. Of all of the dates in the Bible, in the New Testament, this actually clues us in when, when people are usually identifying when a book of the Bible is written, they're given approximate dates because they didn't have video like we have today or like social media posts, which have a timestamp to it. So they're kind of guessing within a time frame. But here we know exactly, more than any other book of the Bible, when Paul was there because this comment about Galileo, who was the proconsul. The proconsul was a one-year assignment from May to May. And we know from outside resources that Galileo was proconsul from 51 to 52 AD. So we know exactly when Paul was there, and he was there for about 18 months, somewhere in time from 50 to 52. We know that Paul is there serving, and we know that he writes these letters a couple of years after the fact. And that might not mean much to you, but I'm going to throw, on, uh, uh, throw up a slide that might be helpful to give you some context. Because when I think of Paul, I think of way after Jesus, until I look at a calendar. So let's just throw this up here. Uh, Jesus was not born in B.C. 1 or 0 or, or 81. He's actually more than likely, give or take, probably about 5 B.C. I can't get into the whole how it came about with our calendaring system. But Jesus was born in about 5 B.C. Paul was born about A.D. 6, give or take. So uh, Paul's a contemporary of Jesus. They're about 11 years apart. So he's not like, way after. He knows about Jesus when Jesus is walking on the planet. So Jesus goes to the cross, rises again about AD 31, give or take. And we know Paul becomes one of his followers about two years later, again, give or take. So this is happening at the same time. Now, here's why I want you to think about the importance of our life and the brevity of life. So we said Paul's in Corinth, probably 50, 52, somewhere in that range. He starts writing right after it. And we know in AD 66 that Paul is martyred or killed for his faith in Rome. What's happening in this letter writing is 
is Paul's becoming a Christian about two years after. Within 20 years, this church is being birthed and these letters are being written. How many of you remember where you were on 9-11? How many of you remember where you were on 9-11? It's marked out in my mind. I know exactly where I was and how I realized those events were unfolding. Well, that was about 22 years ago. So this is exactly the distance of this church being launched from the events of 9-11, here we are today, from Jesus' death and resurrection, here we are today. So these facts, these real-life encounters from Jesus have been circulating and going out. This really happened, and people are learning about what that means. So, so this gives us a sense of the timeline, hopefully that makes you realize how short Paul's life is. He's serving Jesus for about 30 years or so. From the time of his letter writing to the time where he dies for his faith is give or take 12, 13, 14 years, give or take. Okay, we're almost 12 years as a church. I, I want you to want to give you like, this is happening fast. Our life is a vapor. It is here and gone. And what we get is the account of some women and men who are faithful to follow Jesus in their lifetime, and the letters still speak. So last week we looked at what's really important. Before there's a letter, there's a life. Paul encounters Jesus, he follows Jesus, and he gives the rest of his days as much as he can. He gives his life to the leadership and following Jesus, and it's proof that our lives can really count for eternity. So much so that uniquely we get in his life uh, a record of what happened, and his correspondence is used by the Holy Spirit of God to still breathe life to us 2,000 years later. Now, you may not feel like, well, that's not, that's not me. Well, we may not see your life in the same way we see Paul's. I mean, he authored scripture that's, like, pretty epic. Um, his words have been written and quoted and memorized. That's amazing. Yet, make no mistake, your life is making a greater impact than you think. And if we'll be like Paul and like Sosthenes, the dear brother, and like the women and men in this church, our life will matter as well. All right, one last factoid, and we're going to get into what we learned about church and why it matters. What's the size of the church here in Corinth? City of, we said 150 to 300,000 citizens, maybe half a million slaves, half million to three-quarter of a million, he's writing to a group of people who are mostly meeting in homes, and whose homes? It would be the homes of the wealthiest or most prestigious people, because in their culture, uh, the, the most influential person is by nature the host. It's just the way it worked. And by nature, they're the de facto leader, because the society was very much top down. And so they're meeting in a collection of homes. They're probably, again, depending which writer you look at, between 50 and 150 people in the whole city that he's writing to. So some of us think, you know, the church of God in Corinth, the mega church with the flashing lights. No, a couple of houses, a couple of leaders, a couple of families who have fallen in love with Jesus, and by far, they are the minority. And when I say minority, I don't mean ethnic minority. I mean, they're like the little no-name group of people who follow this new religion called the way of Jesus. 
And so if you ever thought that, man, how can we be faithful to Jesus in our lifetime? Try being the church of God in Corinth. 50 to 150. And again, it grew after that. But when he's writing, he's writing to a few community groups that meet together. And he speaks words of life to them. And we know that beyond his lifetime, the movement of Jesus explodes to within 300 years it's, it's explosive in growth and, and taking over sections of the Roman Empire and it spreads around the world, but it starts with something small. We are a larger church than the church of God in Corinth. Again, sometimes we don't see it that way, but what starts small, God can use, and that's good news. All right, all that's background. Um, let's read again, if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. And just some takeaways that we could think about as we discuss in our community groups this week. To the church of God in Corinth, church of God, we'll look at that. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, what does that mean? Called to be his holy people, what does that mean? And then this word, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul starts with a beautiful word in his introduction of encouragement, of who they are. And we want to remind ourselves of who we are. Now, mind you, if you read the whole letter, you realize that very quickly he's going to dive into where they've gone off and how their lives have a discontinuity. There's a disconnect in some of the way that they're living their lives to the way of Jesus. And he writes as a corrective. These things are good, but these things need to be rethought or relived out. These things need to be rejected. I just want to see it's the big picture contrast. The church of God, we belong to God. Sanctified, holy. Okay, these, these are things that really matter, and we'll look at them. Then it's followed by dysfunction. <laughs> this is a telling word to every one of us who choose to follow the way of Jesus. We belong to God. God wants to do something big in and through his people locally and globally and we're all in process. So if you ever felt like, man, I just fall short of this thing, or I, I don't know about this because my life does not live up to everything we're talking about week in and week out, you are not alone. Both things are true. You are part of what God is doing in the world, and our behavior is catching up to who we are. <laughs> we all have growing to do. All right. What is church? The word in Greek is ekklesia, and it comes straight out of Roman culture. It didn't start as a biblical word. It simply meant a gathering or an assembly. And so whenever the Roman Senate came together from around the Roman Empire, and the senators came to do business on behalf of the people, they were called an ekklesia, a gathering, an assembly. Whenever the local municipal government came together to talk about issues, whenever a school group comes together to talk about the school year, that's simply an ecclesia. The word uh, that Paul uses to describe God's people comes out of something that was already happening. So what is church? And this is helpful. Sometimes we think of church as the place, like I'm going to church, which you came to church this morning, sort of. Um, church is not, not and never the building. As a matter of fact, you don't see buildings till a couple hundred years later. To the group he's writing to, there is no church building. There are only homes. And they would meet in large courtyards, and I'm sure they gathered from time to time, 
all of the little house movements, all the community groups come together for our larger thing. But for the most part, it's decentralized. But church is wherever the people come together for a common purpose. And, and, and so we need to remind ourselves that we are the ecclesia, wherever we meet. So right now, we are the, we came, you came from your home, I came from mine, and we are the gathered people with a specific purpose. But when you meet in your community group, half of you are going to meet later today, half of our community groups meet on Sunday, because um, you just want a double dose of all sorts of godliness on the weekend. Well, when you get together and you have chips and guac, you are equally the ecclesia, you are the church. We are the gathered people together. But most of the time, we are God's people, and this is an interesting distinctive. We remain God's people, but we're scattered all across the city as we work and go to school and do all of life. And how does he address them? It is the ecclesia of who? Of God. So he starts with this, not just fluff intro, but he reminds them of who they are. We are not just a gathering of people. There's lots of book clubs. There's lots of, evidently pickleball is a thing now. You ever heard of that thing with the pickle? The, the, there's no pickle and pickleball. But those of you who are part of this cult, like, growing thing, like, I, I say it jokingly, because certain things just take off, and other things, like, take off, take off. So like, my whole world revolves around the pickleball. Well, whatever the case may be, there are all sorts of gatherings, right? But we're not just a gathering of a sports team or a social club or some sort of business network. We are the gathered people who belong to God. So no matter where you come from, or no matter how holy you feel you are or aren't, when we are with each other, together, in his name, where is Jesus? Right there, where two or three are gathered in my name, where am I? I am here. He is, God is with his people. How do I know it? Because his spirit lives within us, and when we come all filled with the Holy Spirit, God's presence is there. We are the church of God. Yet we're the church of God in Corinth. We live in a real place. So we're living in a two-cultured world all the time. Some of you you, you, you lived in other places. So you're an American who grew up in Europe, right? Or maybe you're a missionary, and, and you spent most of your time living in another field. Well, those of you who've had that experience know what it's like to be a part of two cultures at the same time like you're an American or whatever your background is, your cultural background, but you live in a different background, and so you're, you're caught in between. Certain things you do because of this culture, like this is right and this is wrong and this is good, but then you go into that culture and you're like, oh, they do it differently, and you have to discern. So when you belong to Jesus, you're a part of a two-cultured experience. You and I are part of the people of God, and yet we live in a real city that doesn't honor him, Right? And so the whole letter is about how we live as the people of God in a place that's godless. And I love what he says. Who planted the church? Well, Paul. He came and shared the gospel and people came to faith. But he doesn't call it his church. He doesn't say my church. He doesn't say your church. He doesn't even say our church. Collectively, we are the people of God. And that's the beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm a leader in this community, but this has never been and will never be my church. Like, what church do you go to? It's, it's yes, I, I know what we mean by it. Like, where do you gather and where do you serve and where do you love? 
But we got to be careful at the same token because this is God's thing, not our thing. And I think we make a mess of it when we see it more as my thing, right? Where I do what I want in my place because I have influence. You know, we are God's people from across the city. And notice, he does not address the individual home expressions. He says to the church, to the people, the gathered people from all over the city who live in the city and belong to God. And again, these are helpful reminders. When we think of our calling here in 2023 and beyond, we have to humble ourselves and remind ourselves we are a community within the big community within the big city. We belong to Jesus, and so does Sunrise down the street. And so does Calvary Chapel, and so does Resound, and so does B4. And we are part of God's people all across the city, and it's not just about us and not just about ours. It's about the big thing that God's doing. So he writes to the whole church and its many parts. And some of you came from different expressions of God's church, and hopefully you feel loved and welcomed here. Uh, but as a group, we want to remind ourselves that we're called to be humble and just serve the city and serve God's people. Okay, so the church of God. Now, who are they? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does sanctified mean? It means simply set apart for a special purpose. So he starts the letter, I've been called, Paul says, I've been called by God. No man called me. God called me to be a spokesman so that God's church, God's people would gather in the city and they would live as a set-apart people. And it's noticed because we're in Jesus, what, what sets us apart is not anything we've done, not anything we've achieved, not any behavior uh, that we can be proud of. It's simply because we are now included in Jesus who died in our place to pay for our sin and rose again and is alive. Because we're in him, we are now set apart for a purpose people. And what's the purpose? And when we think of the word sanctified, some of us immediately going, sanctification is when mostly in the New Testament, this process that God takes us on to become more like Jesus. So we're adopted into his family. Boom! We express faith and trust in Jesus. We are adopted. We are set free. We're no longer slaves. We're now children of God. It happens in a moment. We're regenerated or regenerated. We have new DNA. The Spirit of God lives within us. In a moment of trust in Christ, that happens. We are included in God's family. We're now in. Our names are written in the book called Life. All good news. But then there's the forming of Jesus in our daily experience. And that's sanctification. We are being set apart more and more to live like the Messiah, right? That's actually not what Paul's referring to here. He's not talking about our experience of growing in Jesus' likeness. He's actually thinking big picture. The church, all of us together, we are a people within a city that have been set apart. We together are God's people with a specific, special purpose. And so it's a reminder that, that being a part of the church, being included in Jesus, is not just like a personal, satisfying experience where you gain eternal life, which is awesome, leave eternal death, which is more awesome, 
and now have a real relationship with God. That is incredible. But if that is true of you, what does that mean for this? See, the reason church matters, among many reasons, is because we are now included in God. And because we've been united by the Holy Spirit as part of God's people, we've been thrown into a city that is not honoring him, and we have been given a calling. You and I are the people of God with a real calling. And we're to live in a unique way. We're to follow Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, so that the appeal of God, God's making an appeal. He's calling to everyone in the Portland metro area, whether you like them or not. He is calling aloud. Come to me. God is reaching out with love. You don't believe me? Read Luke 15. Jesus sweeps the house to find the lost coin. He leaves the 99 to find the lost sheep. And when the lost son comes home, he hugs him and chokes him with love and puts a ring and a robe and has a feast because my son that was dead is now alive, lost and found. God is on a rescue mission, and how does he execute his rescue mission? It's his people. And the set-apart nature is we're not set apart to point the finger at people. We're set apart to point the way to God. You are a part of the people that God is using to rescue the world, which is why it says, and called to be his holy people, sanctified, set apart in the temple when God's people would come to worship. They had tools, like they literally sacrificed animals. Well, the tools to butcher the animals, you could not use them for anything else. They had been sanctified. It's just a fork. No, no, no. But this fork belongs to the worship of God. It's a table. Someone made it with their hands. No, no, no. This is not just a table where you play dominoes. This is the table where the bread of God is put and placed, where the candles and everything had, had meaning and representation. These things were ordinary things but they were sanctified. They were set apart as to be in the presence of God for purposes beyond their ordinary use. And friend, I am drawing this out on purpose. You have been set apart by God for purposes that are beyond your life. You've been positioned by God. You've been, Paul's a tent maker. Paul's a Roman citizen. Paul was trained as background. You have been uniquely set up by God for the worship of God in this godless city and that people will know who he is. Notice what it says, called to be holy, his holy people. Same thing here, the picture is, is by the way, all these metaphors come from the Bible. When Paul writes to the church, they had no New Testament. They did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. They had what we call the Old Testament. So when Paul writes and says, a sanctified people they know what he's talking about. Those tools, the tents, the tabernacle, the temple, the place where God's presence dwells. This was an honorable thing, and now you're part of the honorable thing. 
And then he says, called to be his holy people. They know exactly what he's talking about. Israel was taken out of Egypt in slavery and brought out by God's miraculous saving power to be his holy people, his holy nation, to proclaim his praises to the nations. The reason God brought Israel out of Egypt was not just for Israel, it was for the world. And now you've been included with Christ with purposes that are beyond you. And all of this is true of every Jesus person everywhere, but to the church of God in Corinth. And he reminds them God's people have a place. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, you know this in America. And I think you would all agree. 20 years ago, there was more clout to be a Jesus follower than today. Would you agree? I mean, 25, 30, 50 years ago, like to be a pastor of a church was like an honorable position. Now it's a swear word. Or, oh, oh, like you're a crook. Right? The influence of the church at large in the U.S. has waned in the past 25 years. I'm going to give you some great news you may not believe. In one sense, it doesn't make a difference. Because if God can use 150 people in Corinth, three-quarters of a million, to spread good news around the world, he can use us here. We don't have to have all the clout. Now, if you have the clout, it, that could be helpful. It could open doors. But I've been to places where Jesus and Christian is on the name, but it's only on the name and the culture. It's not on the hearts of men and women. But we could be a part of God's people who are making a difference in Corinth, Hillsborough, Beaverton, or wherever you live. And so what does it mean to be the church in our city? All right, this is for our community groups. So everyone in one, start writing down your thoughts. What does it mean for us to be the church in our city? I think there are three different ways we could be the church in our city. There's probably more, but there are at least three. One, we could be the church or God's people who avoid or retreat from our city. Some of you, have not gone to downtown Portland since the pandemic because that place went to hell. And some of you are like, it, it did. Okay, so one response to activity could be avoid it, retreat for him, from it, ignore it. That's one response. Now, I'm not, I'm not dissing you if you say, like, I'm never going down there again. That's fine. That's your choice. But when it comes to being God's people in a city, when things go south, we can choose to retreat from it and we need to be careful as we think about our faith in the city that we live in. What happens when godly people turn their back on the city? What happens when we say, I'm not going to engage with it? That space is evil. That space is ungodly. I want to live holy. Oh, there's the catch. We are God's holy people. We've been set apart to represent Jesus. That's what it means in our collective calling. We're God's people wherever we live. So one response is to avoid and retreat. In your community groups, I want you to talk about what happens when the church retreats. When we say, I'm not going to engage. We've seen it happen, and I'll say, and this is not a diss, hear me, hear me, but there's been entire movements of people who have said, I'm leaving Oregon to go to a more godly place. And I'm not going to judge anyone based on their moving habits. But I would just say this. What would happen 
if every Jesus-loving person leaves the city? Have we been a witness? Have we gone into all the world and preached good news? If we say, well, I don't want to go where that godlessness is. I want to be around godly people when it seems like the church has always been birthed in a godless place. And godly people make a difference in ungodly places. Second response, and you need to talk about it as a group, is we can fit in with the culture of our city. And this happens too often. We don't want to stick out. What happens when all of Jesus' people live like everybody else? And we say, well, I just want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I, so I, we go with the flow. What happens when we let the culture dictate our convictions? When we go with whatever is the latest fad or the, the, the most famous person preaching the most famous news and we just go with their fame. What, what happens when we ignore the Bible and the convictions that God brings and the demands that God brings in our lives? What happens when we look just like the city? That can't be the greatest response. Or I think another alternative is we could be salt and light to our city. I want to end with the words of Jesus, Matthew 6. You, God's people, are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, Jesus' people, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt adds. Salt preserves. Salt impacts. Salt makes a difference. Light adds. Light exposes. Light builds up. Light makes a difference. And so when we think of what it means to be the church of God in Hillsborough or wherever we live, we need to start thinking through, and the letter, by the way, the letter is going to help God. The Holy Spirit is going to use this ancient letter to shape how we think about what it means to be God's people in the real world. We're going to hit a section come February that is going to disturb everyone in this room. Everyone will be annoyed. Everyone will be disturbed. Some will be offended. Some will cheer when we talk about God and our sexuality and our ethics around gender and life, and maleness, and femaleness, and marriage, boy, I've already annoyed or offended half of you. <laughs> but the letter hits it dead on, and so we're going to hit it dead on as well. All right, that's the church. Now let's hit us, and we're going to respond in worship. Okay, we talked about church, you, us. Now let's get to you, the person. What does it mean for you to be a part of the church? What does it mean for you like, don't even think as a couple. You as a person. Um, everyone post-COVID has already in their mind begun to reevaluate what it means to be a part of the church. And so we need to wrestle with this. And, and I'm not going to give you the answer, but I'm going to say your community group will really help you in discerning. Is your view of involvement, connection to God's people, the people of God in Hillsborough, is your involvement, commitment, connection, service, is it in line with the way of Jesus and the way of Scripture for 2,000 years? Or is your 
connection, a response to three years of chaos in the world. We're going to have to hit this dead on. Because in order to be God's people, we need to live God's way, right? And so I want you and your groups this week to be encouraging one another, challenging one another, talking about what does it mean for you to be a part of church and come to some conclusions and convictions together on what it means to live this out. I'll, um, I'll give you our last Thursday night because you say, well, I don't know if church really matters. Um, we were meeting and going through the guide and it was, it was great. Food was great, conversations were great. And at the end, we got to pray for one another. And it's been really hard the last two months. I've shared about my mom and all that's going on with my parents. And here's the beautiful thing. I didn't ask for it. As a matter of fact, I was leading this particular session. I was like, are there any prayer requests? And I was like, obviously pray for us. And then the group just surrounded us and like laid hands on us and just like prayed for us and encouraged us. And I thought, okay, church isn't just songs and sermons. It's about when life goes south, having people who love and follow Jesus to be like, air in your lungs, you know? Where they're asking like, what can we do for you? And friend, if you don't have that now, if churches is just a place you attend on occasion, if you don't have people who love Jesus and actually know you, then, friend, when life hits the fan and the fan is there and you will hit it, then what kind of person of God will you be if you're not deeply rooted with people now? Okay, what I'm praying for us is a deeper expression of church in this next season of our life. So if, stand with me if you would. <clears throat> Forgive the broken voice, but you know me. It's going to happen. We just want to pray into this and ask God the Holy Spirit to give us the resources to be his people wherever we live and work and serve and to be God's people here as 26 West Church. So Holy Spirit of God, will you help us because we're fumbling along and God, we all have ideas about what we think church should be but Holy Spirit of God, we now submit those thoughts to you because you're the author and the leader. Jesus Christ, you're the head of the church. God, our Father, we're, we're looking to you as the leader of our life. And, and we're, we're submitting our lives again to you. Lord, we need you. We're calling on you. Lead us and guide us into truth. And Lord, remind us of who we are so that we'll live as your people wherever we go in this place and wherever we are 99% of the time this week. We want to live and follow you. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Sunday Gathering podcast. To learn more about 26 West Church, please visit our website at 26westchurch.org.